Hey everyone, Justin here from Eerie Earfuls. We're bringing this old podcast back, and to prepare for the big return, we're re-releasing our old episodes every two weeks until we catch up. These were originally recorded in 2018, so the references are going to be a little out of date. Also, the earlier episodes have some occasional sound or editing issues as we figured out our process, which I've tried to fix or mitigate if possible. Personally, I still think they sound pretty good, but we definitely got better as we went along. I hope you enjoy these older episodes and expect us to start dropping new ones sometime in July or August. Stay scared, everyone. Hey everyone, welcome to Eerie Earfuls, the Sutter Kane Book Club. Every two weeks we choose a horror movie double feature to compare and contrast for your entertainment. Fair warning, there will be spoilers. I'm Justin. And I'm Brandon. Okay, uh, well let's get to today's double feature. The person that picks the double feature rotates from episode to episode. This week was Brandon's pick, and he chose Urban Legend and Theater of Blood. Let's pop in the synopsis tapes. Urban Legend is a 1998 teen slasher movie written by Silvio Horta and directed by Jamie Blanks. Michelle Mancini is attacked and killed by someone hiding in the backseat of her car. Meanwhile in the student lounge at Pendleton University, Natalie Simon learns that one of their dorms, Stanley Hall, was the site of a massacre in 1973. The story is discredited by school journalist Paul Gardner. Several murders pop up across the campus, each suspiciously similar to that of a known urban legend, including Natalie's own roommate. Things come to a head when one of Natalie's friends, Sasha, is murdered live during her campus radio show. At first believing the killer to be their folklore professor, learning that he himself survived the Stanley Hall massacre back in 73, Natalie goes to confront the professor, but is attacked by fellow classmate Brenda. She reveals that Natalie and Michelle accidentally killed Brenda's boyfriend by reenacting the gang high-beam initiation myth, and Brenda is out for revenge. Paul appears, distracting Brenda long enough for campus security officer Reese to shoot Brenda in the elbow. Natalie grabs the gun and shoots Brenda again, sending her through a window. Brenda hides in the backseat of their car and attacks again. Paul crashes the car, sending Brenda through the windshield into the river. The film ends with Brenda posing as a college student at another school, her own killing spree, now an urban legend. Theater of Blood is a 1973 mystery horror movie written by Anthony Greville Bell and directed by Douglas Hickox. After being denied a coveted award, Shakespearean actor Edward Lionheart leaps from a balcony into the Thames River. Two years later, on the 15th of March, the critics who failed to acclaim his genius begin dying off one by one in a manner very similar to murder scenes from Shakespeare's plays. It's soon revealed that Lionheart and his daughter Edwina are committing these murders together. For the final critic, Lionheart holds a special reenactment of the awards ceremony, threatening to put out the critic's eyes with red-hot daggers, as with Gloucester in King Lear. The trap fails, however, as the police arrive. Lionheart sets fire to the theater, and in the confusion, Edwina is killed. Lionheart retreats, carrying her body to the roof and delivering Lear's final monologue before the roof caves in, sending him to his death. Okay, uh, why did you pick these two movies? Well, I initially picked Urban Legend and Theater of Blood because I wanted to pair two slasher films that were based on revenge plots. So basically, someone is wronged by someone else, and then they take revenge based on some kind of source material. 
And I feel like these two, they work very well together in that aspect. And I think mostly because one does it extremely well and the other does it kind of well. You're not a fan of urban legend, I take it. No, and it's... So, I will say, the reason I was not a huge fan of Urban Legend was because all the reviews that I read of the movie claimed it was a satire slasher flick, which I do understand, because on the one hand, it is kind of pointing a mirror towards society, and it really makes you think about how often we do not question things like stories we hear or read, and this is especially prevalent now and relevant in today's times with social media and things like that. And because there's so many fake articles and unsighted sources that were actually created by someone else, it's very a very interesting time to live in. Um, and so on, on that level, I think the film succeeds in pointing a mirror towards society and making us realize how often we listen to these silly things and take them as truth and never question them. On the other hand, it said it was satire, and it's in the same vein as Scream, because, you know, like, Scream really kicked off this teenage slasher film renaissance in the 90s. So clearly, it follows the same formula, like, almost exactly, with the same, like, stock characters and everything. But it, you know, says it's satire of the slasher genre, but I don't think it is. It feels more like a parody. And I can't tell if it's an intentional parody to where the people are like overacting or, you know, whatever intentionally, or if they're just bad at acting and it's an unintentional parody. If you're talking about Rebecca Gayhart's performance, I will hear nothing bad about it. No, it was perfect. No, so, okay. So <laughs> that was actually one of my strong points, why I thought the two films worked so well together. Because in Theater of Blood, you have Vincent Price, who's doing an amazing performance. And in the other film, you have Rebecca Gayhart, who is also doing a phenomenal performance. <laughs> but it's so sneaky, because through most of the film, she is this boring, bland, milk toast character that I did not give a flying shit about. The whole movie, I was like, oh, this person's just there, just waiting to be picked off. And then they finally reveal that she is the murderer, and she delivers this bonkers performance that is my favorite thing I have probably ever seen, and it really elevated the film, because at that point, I was done. I was like, this is so, uh And then she delivered that performance, and I was like, that's fantastic. But it also kind of was cementing my point. I feel like this is parody. Personally, I really enjoy Urban Legend. It's not nearly as good as Scream, and you're right. It basically follows the Scream format exactly. It is like beat for beat. Even like the side characters like Gail Weathers. She's an annoying reporter always trying to get the scoop. And in this movie, that is Jared Leto's character. I don't know. Even even in spite of that, I still really enjoy it. Part of it's probably nostalgia because it was one of those movies that I watched growing up because it came out in 1998. Mm -hmm. So I was 9 or 10 when it came out. So it was one of those movies that I grew up watching. I wanted to talk a little bit about Urban Legends just because I I got curious when I was watching it, especially because this came out in 1998. By the way, September, I think it's 25th, will be the 20-year anniversary of this movie coming out. So we are withering away (laughs) into dust. (laughs) So I did a little bit of research on some of these urban legends because I thought they were really interesting. So um, the first person that dies in the movie, it's it's a take on the person in the backseat urban legend. There's kind of two different versions. There's the person in the backseat, but there's also the high beam gang initiation. And they, at times they're two separate legends, but they're also frequently combined together. So the person in the backseat legend is that um, 
a woman stops at a gas station and the gas station attendant is overly aggressive with her and freaks her out and so she runs away but he was trying to warn her that there is someone in the back seat and then that person kills them which is exactly what happens in the movie surprise guest cameo by brad dorif as the uh gas station attendant you may know him as the voice of chucky <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, she, you know, runs away, and then the killer appears in the backseat and cuts her head off with an axe. In another version of the story, though, someone is driving, and someone gets behind them and starts flashing their headlights at them repeatedly over and over again. And they, they're intimidated. In a lot of versions, the person behind them is in, like, a huge truck, like a diesel, so that they're afraid of getting run over. They eventually get home, uh, or get to a place where they, they're safe, they feel like they're safe, and they get out of the car, and they run to someone for help, and when the person in the truck that's following them gets out, they say that they're flashing their lights because there is a killer in the backseat, and every time they turn the lights on, the person ducks down and hides. And then the sort of third version where the high beam myth is its own myth, it's that if you see someone driving without their headlights and you flash your high beams at them to make them turn their lights on, then they'll get behind you and start driving to intimidate you and try to run you off the road. And it's supposed to be an initiation for, like, being in a gang. The person in the backseat one is partially based in fact. There are reports, even up to today, of people occasionally finding someone hiding in their backseat, either from the law or someone who's, like, trying to kill them. The earliest stories of this started in the 60s, which uh, a thing that you'll notice as I talk about these is that a lot of them come from the 60s for some reason, the 60s or the 70s. There's actually one story in particular. In 1964, there was a criminal hiding in a backseat and made the mistake of hiding in the backseat of a police officer's car, <laughs> and the detective turned around and uh, shot him. <laughs> <laughs> the high beam thing, as I said, kind of merged with the person in the backseat story. But that seems to have come from the 80s, where supposedly Hell's Angels bikers were um, doing this as an initiation. They were driving with their headlights off, and when someone flashed their high beams, they were getting behind them and running them off the road. These rumors spread from 1984 until 1993, and in 1983 there was this frenzy that even got reported on by the national news that there was going to be a blood initiation weekend. And that uh, it was going to happen in September, and then like suddenly tons of gang members were just going to start like attacking you on the road if you flashed your high beams at them. And it all built up to nothing. Nothing ever <laughs> happened. But it started popping up again in the 2000s uh, due to cell phones. So suddenly cell phones started becoming a thing. And then uh, just like in the 90s, it was a thing because of email. And you, they, you would like forward this on to people so they knew. Oh God, in yeah. the 2000s, it was because of cell phones. It, it came up again and people were forwarding these text messages on to each other to let everyone know, by the way, oh my gosh, there's a blood initiation weekend. So I'm curious. I know that the first one is based on an urban legend. And then the second one, you know, the boyfriend hanging from the tree, that's also an urban legend. But then they kind of start to deteriorate. It's like a mix between just like, what's a creative way to kill someone? And then throwing some urban legend references in there. Like when the Dean is murdered. You know, he gets, like, slashed from behind underneath his car, and then he proceeds to crawl forward, and the killer, like, takes the parking brake off his car, and he gets run over by his own car, but also gets impaled by the spike strip thing? That's not an urban legend, is it? Because if it is, I couldn't find it. I think that the hiding under the car thing is a, like, a sort of branch off of, or a mutation of the hiding in the back seat thing. Like, you're supposed to check your back seat and under the car to make sure someone's not hiding under there to, to hurt you. Oh. I think that's where the urban legend link is supposed to be. Not not the, don't lay on spike strips or right. they'll impale you, because blades. <laughs> uh, I did not, uh, obviously, I did not like that part for two reasons. Uh, one was because I felt like it was kind of like a needless murdering of a character just to show somebody being murdered. 
which whatever, slasher film, that's their prerogative. But also, wasn't really an urban legend. Number three, he never attempted to serpentine. And he just like <laughs> crawled straight the whole time towards that stupid fucking exit. Like, are you just old? You just don't know that's a thing? Ugh, it drove me crazy. Though he, he was suffering from Prometheus syndrome. Um, <laughs> where he just runs in a straight line. <laughs> it was that one. And then the second one where that guy, he gets his dog stuck in the microwave. I really did not like that sequence because earlier, the kid that gets hung from the tree, that's like part of the boyfriend hanging from the tree urban legend. He plays a prank on the class where he does the pop rocks and coke thing and proceeds to like pretend to choke. And then when he gets hung from the tree, he gets choked to death. And then they bring it back again, but in a dumb, weird way. You think they're going to do the call is coming from inside the house. And then all of a sudden the guy's like, no, this is the one where I put your dog in a microwave. And I was like, okay. <laughs> oh, and then one, he huh? goes down. Yeah. <laughs> and then the killer pours a bunch of pop rocks in his mouth and then pours a bunch of Drano down there, drowning him in Drano and pop rocks foam. And I was like, what the fuck? You, they already have heard of the Drano and Pop Rocks uh, thing. Turns out Drano is fine. It's just it's only if you consume it with Pop Rocks. That it's dangerous. <laughs> I felt like that was very lazy. It was like, what can we do? What if we do the Pop Rocks thing again? Except it's not really blowing up his stomach or anything. He's just drowning in Drano. Yeah, it's funny. I, the, that myth started in the 70s because that's when the candy was introduced. And they have apparently been fighting this rumor, this uh, urban legend, since Pop Rocks came out. Because oh they came gosh. out in the 70s. The rumor got started because parents were afraid that kids would choke. But the way the candy crackled, they were afraid mm -hmm. that it would cause kids to choke on the candy. <laughs> and uh, even though Pop Rocks had done tons of research and they were like, I mean, like if you inhale it, they'll choke but it's not like that's not swelling up in their mouth or anything they're safe to eat the uh, rumor kept spreading until the 80s and in the 80s pop rocks disappeared and people were like yep see they took them off the shelves because they were dangerous because if you ate them and drank soda then you would die and turns out they were bought by a different company and marketed as action candy uh, so they didn't disappear they just got rebranded and but people took that as to be like proof that they were dangerous and so they had to be taken off the shelves which they're back now right. although the rumor still happens um because i don't know if you remember when we were growing up where i think it was baskin robbins was doing this like pop rocks ice cream yeah like a float yeah. a woman sued them because she said that her daughter got sick from it i wanted to mention the murder of sasha tara reed's character uh, on the radio because mm -hmm. i agree with you it feels like their urban legend tie breaks down pretty quickly like they hit yes. the main ones and then they're like anyway this guy got drano and pop rocks that's kind of like soda and pop rocks right, right? <laughs> i don't know that it's based on an urban legend like i couldn't find anything about a woman being murdered live on the radio uh but it did make me think about this thing that we studied in college um called the bystander syndrome or something like that the, the idea is that everyone will assume someone else is doing something, and so no one will help in certain situations. And oh, the, the yeah. specific case they cited was 1964. Uh, there was a woman, 28-year-old woman named Kitty Genovese, and she was raped and stabbed to death in front of her apartment complex. And apparently the attack lasted for 30 minutes, and several dozen people knew it was happening. They could hear it, but nobody reported it because they assumed someone else had already called the cops. Wow. So that one kind of, not really an urban legend so much as seemed to be kind of inspired by truth. But I wanted to look up some urban legends from our generation that are more relevant. All of these are things that people still believe. And some of these I remember reading about when I was a kid in the 90s. Supposedly, Lavender Town's music. I don't know if, know if you remember Lavender Town from the game. Hmm. Which game? 
Pokemon. No, I mean which version? Uh, red and blue. Uh, whenever oh. you go to Lavender Town, the music is like. Oh my god, yes. So the music supposedly was changed because the original music was such a high frequency that it was causing uh, Japanese kids to commit suicide. <laughs> Are you serious? I mean, that's the That's, that's the, the urban legend. legend. Okay. Yeah, that's the urban legend. I'm falling was... prey to my own thing that I talked about. Oh my god. <laughs> So, uh, and I looked it up and apparently there's like, people are still posting supposedly original versions of the music on YouTube, but there's no record that the music was ever changed. It's the same music. Uh, but then there's two more. The, these next two are specifically called Creepypasta. And I don't know if you know what those are. Yes. The website. Cause that's where they're originated from, right? The website yeah, Creepypasta. Well, so Creepypasta is a pun on copypasta. And right. copypasta, it was just like a form of memeing where you just took text and copied and pasted it over and over again. And then eventually you took pictures and just copied and pasted it over and over again. And then eventually they just, they called these creepy pasta because they were stories that you copied and pasted over and over again that were spooky. And the idea was to like sort of disseminate them among the internet and make them memes. Mm -hmm. So the Slender Man is the most obvious one. There was a documentary that came out uh, last year on HBO Beware the Slender Man about two girls that took their third friend into the woods and stabbed her to death, claiming that Slender Man told them to. Um, those that documentary is extremely good, but dark as fuck. Yeah, I would imagine. Ugh. Have you heard anything about Slender Man? Oh yeah, it was it was such a thing when I was in college when I was doing my bachelor's degree stuff, which was like 2010 to 2014. It was such a phenomenon that I remember people like watching these videos on YouTube and stuff that was supposedly claiming to have proof of capturing Slender Man on camera and people talked about it. I didn't realize at the time that was like an urban legend with a legitimate source specifically yeah. like it, there's, a, there's a legitimate source out there that proves that it was made up but people are taking it to be true. Anyway, it's very fascinating but I didn't realize that it had a, a legitimate source until when I was in graduate school. Yeah, I think they actually interview in that documentary the guy who created Slenderman, or at least they name drop him. If they don't interview him, then they talk about the person who actually came up with Slenderman. There's a movie coming out about Slenderman um, this year. Yeah, like a fictionalized movie. Like they had the documentary on HBO, and now there's going to be like a fictionalized movie, which looks pretty good. And then the last one was called Herobrine. It's from Minecraft. I've never played Minecraft. I, I don't get Minecraft, but it's because I'm old and I, and I accept that. <laughs> but uh, I feel the same way. <laughs> so Minecraft is a game for those that may not know. It's like uh, someone took an old 8-bit or 16-bit Nintendo game and then made it 3D. So it's blocky, but it's in three dimensions. Supposedly, there is a character or a player named Herobrine who is a human entity with skin similar to another character's, a character named Steve. I don't know what that means, but Steve, so like green shirt and blue pants, I hmm. guess. I guess he's like the mascot. But instead of looking just like Steve, this character has white eyes. A lot of the legends say that depending on what render speed you put your game on, um, depends on how much loads in the distance and the, what you don't see is, I guess, in like a fog. Mm -hmm. And uh, this person said that they saw someone standing in the distance which didn't make sense because they had started a single player version of the game so there shouldn't be any other players in there and then when they turned their render speed up the person disappeared and it's also supposedly notch the person who created minecraft it's their brother who died and this is like they're still playing <laughs> it's also supposedly caused from a virus from like an early version of the game from like an alpha or beta version that has never been removed 
this has been uh, sort of spurned on by the fact that version, I think it's like version 1.9 on, every time they post an update to Minecraft, they post that they have removed the Herobrine bug, but Herobrine keeps appearing. Interesting. That is a modern day urban legend, and people got into serious fights whenever I googled it. Uh, I guess that's kind of the, the way they do in the urban legend film, too. I mean, not like super serious fights, but man, they have some serious discussions about whether stuff is real or not, which I didn't really care about in the movie. But still, it does happen. There is always at least one person that questions the legitimacy of it. Everybody else is like, no, 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 no. I guess it's because they don't want their good time to be spoiled, you know, because there's kind of a certain thrill you get from telling those kinds of stories and eliciting those reactions from people. Those Debbie Downers are kind of spoiling the mood. Yeah, there's something fun about this. They're like, ooh, spooky stories, <laughs> web ghosts. Creepypastas are sort of interesting to me because they so obviously have a source generally. Right. Like you can go to the website and say this person wrote it. So I don't understand how they're disseminating among people and people are believing them. Versus, like, in the 60s and 70s, the internet didn't exist. So, like, if someone told you, oh, I knew someone who was a babysitter, and turns out someone broke into the house, and they were calling them from upstairs and messing with the children, right. like, you're just going by what other people have told exactly. you. And when enough people tell you this, it sounds true. Yeah, I mean, that kind of happens now, too. I listened to an episode of Planet Money a while back. The particular episode is called The King of Fake News. And in that episode, they found the person that wrote that story that was about Hillary Clinton and she did some kind of like thing with the FBI and it led to these spies dying. It led to like this kid's death because of something Hillary Clinton, I don't know. Reading it, you'd think it would be completely unbelievable. And in the episode, they literally found the guy that wrote it, interviewed him, and he admitted that he completely fabricated the story and the website it was posted to look like news stories, but they're completely fabricated stories. And he even admitted he himself was a Democrat, but he was doing this because it made money. He was like, we really tried to do this the first time with a liberal bent, and literally every time we did it, it was shot down really fast because everybody fact-checked it. And so they would come back with all these facts, and it would never get spread. But he said it was super easy to do that among the conservative community. It would just be read, someone would agree, and then post it. And even after that episode aired, that is still something that people believe. What's interesting to me is that this is different than urban legends in the past. Urban legends in the past were like serial killers, people preying on kids at Lover's Lane, mm -hmm. spooky things like this is a ghost, this is a haunted video game, this is like if you look in the mirror and say Bloody Mary, then she gets you, boo. <laughs> but like this is more like presenting conspiracy theories. By the way, before we go too deep into discussing Theater of Blood much and like tying it into Urban Legend, I want to bring up one thing that kind of bothered me about Theater of Blood as fantastic as it is. They built up Edward Lionheart committing suicide. Like he's he's dead. He can't be the killer, even though they never found a body. And he just jumped into the river. Like it's not like he jumped onto the pavement. He right. just jumped into the river. <laughs> he did jump a long way into the Thames River, though. Now, granted, he did a very yeah. good dive technique where he was like headfirst. So. He, like, you know, and, you know, yeah, exactly. But from that height, hitting water, it's like hitting concrete um, because of the surface tensions. I understand them believing he's dead. My question is, after he comes back and they're like, oh, this is clearly Lionheart. He, he's killing people based on his former Shakespeare tour in order. And it's specifically people who talked badly about him. And then they go, no, no, but he's dead. But like, but is he? Like, you didn't find a body. Evidence seemed to suggest otherwise. <laughs> right, yeah, because they uh, they kind of accuse his daughter first. 
That's what I want to bring up. They show her as being really good at makeup. They, they show specifically at points that she works on a movie set and she's doing movie makeup. So I was waiting for the reveal to be that she is some sort of like master of disguise and that she is Edward Lionheart, that she's been dressing up as him and murdering people. Like that's what I was waiting on is for her to like pull off a Vincent Price mask and be like, haha, it was me the whole time. But she didn't. It just turns out he's still alive and just a petty bitch. (laughs) It was crazy. Personally, I think that makes it way better. (laughs) The petty bitch level in that movie is fantastic. So what I'd like to do is I'm going to go through and just sort of like list off how people died in Theater of Blood because I went through and I talked about the urban legends that Rebecca Gayhart's character, I think her name's Natalie, um, used... I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, that her character used to kill people in the movie. And it's interesting the way this movie sometimes pairs up with Urban Legend surprisingly well to the point where I would almost ask if they like had this movie in mind whenever they wrote it. Um, so the first person dies hacked to death on the Ides of March, which is a reference to Julius Caesar. Oh, yes. The second person is impaled by a spear and then dragged behind a horse, which is a death from Troyes and Cressida. Uh, the third person is decapitated in his sleep and then his wife wakes up and finds him that way, which is a reference to a death from uh, Cymbeline, which I've never seen and had never heard of. But then, just like in Urban Legend, some of the deaths start to fall apart. Like, some of the things that he does to kill people are not deaths from Shakespeare yes. plays. In the same way that yes. Rebecca Gayhart's character just starts sort of fudging Urban Legends. Like, I mean, Soda and Pop Rocks won't actually kill someone, but Drano and Pop Rocks will, so let's do that. <laughs> One of the people that he kills is a reference to the Merchant of Venice. It's a conversation between Shylock and... I can't remember the other character's name. And Shylock is demanding for a pound of flesh. In this movie, instead of the girl uh, talking them out of it, he just cuts the guy's heart out to get a pound of flesh. And one of the characters even says, it's Lionheart, all right. Only he would have had the temerity to rewrite Shakespeare. The next person is drowned in a vat of wine from Richard III. Then there's a weird moment where Vincent Price pretends to be a duelist and one of the uh, critics, I believe his name was Devlin. Yes, Mm-hmm. And they fence, and that's from Romeo and Juliet. The fa- the famous dueling scene is between uh, Mercutio and whoever the other one is. So right? that was that's where I got confused because one Romeo and Juliet has two duel scenes. There's the duel between Tybalt oh. and Mercutio because in that one Tybalt kills Mercutio because Romeo intervenes, and then there's a duel scene between Romeo and Tybalt where uh, Romeo kills Tybalt. Which I guess would make sense thematically because Romeo is specifically fighting Tybalt out of like vengeance because Tybalt killed Mercutio Mm -hmm. and Lionheart is also out for revenge. Except there's a much more theatrical and interesting duel that he should have been recreating, which would be Hamlet, where they fight with poison swords. And when he stuck him in the (laughs) face, I was like, oh, so that's it. Like, it's the poison sword one. And then he he specifically says, you're familiar with Romeo and Juliet. And I was like, why? Why this one and not Hamlet? Um, on, on that point, that ties into my point about why one film succeeds and the other one fails. And it all has to do with plot. Now, they do share the similarity, obviously, in these revenge kills mimicking some kind of story. However, urban legends starts to deteriorate from that very quickly. And there is, like, no explanation as to why. It's just like, she just needs to kill people. Even though the title of the movie is Urban Legend. 
Theater of Blood does deviate from that, but they at least offer explanations because, number one, he is going through the touring schedule, and each one of those plays, he kills off a critic for a specific bad review from that critic from each play. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, each play was particularly reviewed badly by a specific critic, and it is fascinating that aspect of, oh, you know, only he would have the temerity to rewrite Shakespeare. But on the other hand, he would, because he's basing all of these kills off of, you know, famous Shakespeare plays. And and so I felt like that aspect of it was plotted. It was built into the plot. Like, they didn't just get lazy and went like, mm, well, you know. But at least the kills are cool. You know, they are cool, but they are also built into the plot as to why they are deviating from the original source material. Why they're going in a specific order. Why the critics are dying in a specific order. Not to mention... Um, another point is in Urban Legend, to me, it didn't make sense because on one hand, it feels like a parody of Scream. But on the other hand, it also feels like a parody of I Know What You Did Last Summer, even though all of the victims, only two of which did anything wrong to this girl, and all of the other ones are just supposed to like torture the main character. And I felt like that wasn't a viable plot device because she doesn't seem particularly affected by their death because she's not particularly close to them. She's just affected because, one, she was in close proximity to them, and two, they died. So there's like a killer on the loose. But other than that, she has almost no emotional connection to them other than the fact that they are in college together. So to me, I don't think that was a successful implementation of a plot device. And number two, they just started like killing off random, meaningless characters. Like they killed off the Dean for whatever reason. It was just to have an interesting death where someone dies on spike strips. And they also killed off the English professor, which they didn't explain really either. They do explain that one. Oh, yeah. yeah. This way, yeah, it, that's it right. Almost, it's almost a ripoff of Scream because in that way, he was going to play the role of Sydney's yeah. dad, where he survived this massacre. And so they're going to frame him for all these murders because this was the anniversary of the massacre and so he was going right. to murder a bunch okay. of people. So so that one I understand because they, they were going to try to use him as the red herring. I had forgotten about that. Sorry, it was really late when I watched both of these movies last no, night. Cool. So yeah, so the Dean, that was one. Um, I feel like there was another one that was just kind of... That guy at the party with the... Pointless. With the drain. Yeah, that guy, yeah, like that one was kind of pointless too. And they killed his dog, which whatever, just to work another urban legend in there, even though they had already deviated from that. The girl at the radio station, it was just kind of meaningless. And then the plot kind of starts to fall apart. By the time you get to the end of the plot in Urban Legend, things start to happen that don't really make sense and can't really be explained. Because all these people get picked off, and then some of their bodies they don't find. She puts them in the old dorm building, which still hasn't been torn down 20 years later, expecting for that other girl to take refuge in that building at some point. There's no guarantee that that girl would find her way back to that building. She just kind of ends up stumbling across it, and once she sees her out the window, she starts screaming to lure the girl inside. The ending plot is kind of a mess. And I, another thing that I wrote was like, how do these all these people have the same fucking parka? Like, this is in the Northeast. It's not like in Canada. How do all these people have the same parka? I was watching the special features, and originally this movie was supposed to take place in the winter, but they were filming Ugh. in the summer. They decided, one, they didn't want to force all the actors to wear coats, and two, it would, it would be too much work trying to like get an entire campus made up to look like fake snow all the time. And they just decided the killer wore a parka as a costume, <laughs> but it makes the plot points with the parkas really weird when you're like, okay, yes. but it's like summer, why do you have this out? Yes, exactly. And um, so that is a further, like, 
devolution of the plot because she ends up wandering across a random road. The creepy janitor guy picks her up and then magically the killer is on that same road and is driving with no headlights on. The janitor flashes a light, she turns it around and, you know, it turns into the gang urban legend, which is fine, except how on earth would the killer know that that's just where she happened to stumble, you know, and that's also who happened to pick her up. And I don't know how. That doesn't seem plausible. I feel like it could have worked if they had set her up as having planned a little more because they do that, which actually yes. brings me to the next death in Theater of Blood. They do that in Theater of Blood. One of the murders is a reference to Othello. He poses as a masseuse and is giving the wife of one of the critics a massage. But he also called the critic and told him, by the way, she's sleeping around. So when he came home, he heard moans from a massage and thought, that harlot. And then he runs in there and strangles her to death like an Othello, which on the one hand shows a lot of foresight because he had been going there for weeks. This wasn't like a surprise. She knew who this guy was. Right. She recognized him. She knew him. She called him by a particular name that he had given her. She knew this was her masseuse. He had been coming there for weeks. On the other hand, how could he, how he could have possibly known that this guy was going to strangle her? Get mad? Maybe. Beat her? Maybe. But go so far as to actually strangle her to death, even after realizing, because he kicks the door open, there's a moment where he has to see her and go, this is a massage, not sex. He, I think he calls her a slut or something. Like, why would he keep doing that? The next death is electrocuted by hair rollers, which is where the theme <laughs> sort of falls apart a little bit at times, because uh, this was a reference to Henry VI Part One, and they burned a witch at the stake, and so by burn at the stake, I guess he took electricity to be like that. Well, yeah, elec I mean, electricity does burn you, so it is at least a more modern take on that. Yeah. So, But, like, some of the other ones had been archaic, so it's weird that he decided to update that one, but then, like, right. dress in full medieval costume and stab that guy with the ridiculous ornate spear right um, and oh, that was fantastic this one also this next one ties into urban legend again one of the critics his name is meridu he is extremely attached to his poodles he has two of them as a reference to one of the deaths in titus andronicus the queen at some point someone kidnaps her children and kills them and bakes them into pies and then feeds them to her and then reveals to her like halfway through the pie oh by the way them's your kids that's a kid pie and then she's like ah. <laughs> and they do the same thing so he kidnaps that guy's dogs and he kills them and he bakes them into pies and then there's this weird sequence where they're doing like a spoof of a show called this is your dish and i was like is this a thing because the guy seemed to act like he knew what this was he was like oh this is your dish great i've always wanted to be on this so i googled it there this is not a show but there is a show similar called This Is Your Life, which was an American show that got taken to England and they basically just ambush famous celebrities. And I, I don't entirely know, read them stuff about their mm -hmm. life. Um, but it's, I guess it's like to show appreciation to them. Oh. But yeah, so like, and I, I actually watched part of an old episode where they like ambush this woman on the side of the road. And it seemed like it was set up very similarly where this guy was like, the host was like, all right, and we're waiting here uh, just any time now. We should see actress, blah, blah, blah. And, and then she like, she gets out of the car and then she's like, oh my gosh. And they're like, so-and-so, this is your life. So I guess this is a parody to that. Point being, they uh, cook his dogs in a pie, and then they feed him the pie, and then later he's like, where's my dogs? And then they're like, oh, they're in the pie. And then there's this great moment where he pulls one of the, like, fancy domes off of a dish, and the pie <laughs> has the two poodles' heads sitting on top. <laughs> yes. He, like, uses a funnel and just starts force-feeding the guy the pie until he chokes to death, which ties into one of the deaths from Urban Legend. The guy who died from Drano and Coke has his dog microwaved, and he goes over and is like, oh my god, my dog! And then he runs upstairs, and then they put a funnel in his mouth, and they force-feed him Pop Rocks and Drano. The deaths somehow, like, line up in an interesting way of execution. 
And then the last death is, it's Lionheart's death is a reference to King Lear, the last lines that he speaks. His daughter winds up playing the role of, I think it's Claudia. They, they even exchange the like dying sequence, which is funny because she gets hit over the head by an award by one of the <laughs> homeless people that's been helping him throughout the movie. And they recite Lear back and forth to each other. And then she just instantly dies at the moment that she's supposed to die in the script. And I was like, she seems fine. Oh, she's dead. Okay. And then he carries her up to the roof and then he's standing up there reciting King Lear and then he dies at the moment that King Lear is supposed to die. Yes. They are so good um, attention to detail about hiding these things and then exploiting them later. He really gets at most of the critics' vices and then exploits them before their death and finds interesting ways to like tie, you know, like the, the guy that loves wine and they always talk about and they make that point at least a few times before he actually dies in a bucket of wine. And, um, you know, the guy whose birthday was the 15th of March, but he also owned like an abandoned building and so it was very interesting how they exploited that because it makes it seem like he's got to run out squatters kind of frequently you know like oh they're squatting again that's true and they they don't uh they didn't do a good job with tying the deaths in urban legends to like characters vices no. like if if they were doing that it would have made sense for um that one guy's character with the blonde hair when he he does the the fake out with the pop rocks and soda it would have made more sense for him to die that way because he's the one that right. did the joke but instead he weirdly played is the role of the boyfriend and the, the hanged boyfriend myth which those two characters were not dating he was trying to like make a pass at her yeah. and be really gross and she was having none <laughs> of it so it's really weird that they chose that instead of say paul the journalist being the one who would die that way yeah uh, that was one of the that was one of the things that i thought how they paired or contrasted well was because they're based on like a similar premise but the execution of which and the attention to detail in Theater of Blood is so much so that every time they deviate from something, there is at least, you know, uh, an explanation, a plausible explanation for why that might be. The only one that I don't think is very good is the female critic. And literally, it was just like, well, ladies get their hair done. Mm, you know, killer of the hairdresser. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a good point. I wish that I had been right and that the twist had been that the daughter was the killer j dressing up as her as her dad mm -hmm. because and here's why you are right that the actual like logic behind who dies and how is really good. The plays are in the order that his tour was and each critic dies based on a bad review they wrote for that play. But the actual motivation for murder is spiderweb thin <laughs> because his entire motivation is I didn't win an award. That's it. And, like, and the critics were mean to me, but like, welcome to show business That's versus true. Rebecca Gayhart's character. Her actual execution isn't good because she just kind of kills random people because she only has grievances with two people. But her actual motivation makes more sense because her boyfriend was killed by the main character and the girl from the beginning of the movie running him off the road. Her motivation makes more sense, but her execution is wacky, whereas his motivation is nonsense, but his execution makes sense logically, like this is why he made these decisions. Although I will say that was a point in the movie, um, especially for Urban Legend, where my... <laughs> Where my notes started to drift a lot, because she does a good job of explaining why 
oh, you two ran him off the road and killed my boyfriend and we were going to college together, you know, and we were going to get married or whatever. And then starts poking holes in her own explanation where she was like, you weren't driving, but it was your car and it was your idea, even though you technically didn't execute it, which makes me wonder why the girl that executed it wasn't the last to die. You'd think the one with the strongest tie, the driver, would be the last one to be tortured and, you know, murdered. Instead, it's just the one who was sitting passenger. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I don't know that it's the right choice, but I think the reason they made that choice is because they wanted the main character to be sympathetic, and I think they were worried if they had made the driver the main character, then whenever we learn that she basically killed someone by being reckless and an asshole, that we're, we're gonna be like, oh, well, then right. you kind of deserve this, versus mm. now, she was part of it, she had the idea, but she didn't go through with it, and so there's like a level of separation where she can say, I mean, yeah, I had bad thoughts, but I didn't do it. So she's right. more innocent and we can be like, oh, well, she didn't actually do it. So you're being too mean. And we can like side with her instead of the killer. Still, though, I was at that point, I had fallen in love with the killer because of Rebecca Gayhart's um, Rebecca's performance. <laughs> but then she started poking holes in her own like explanation. And I was like, stop that. You're over explaining. Just cut her kidney out and <laughs> leave. Like. And then I didn't understand. Uh, it was one of those kills. She strangles the roommate and the main character walks in and thinks she's having sex. So she's like, oh, sorry, and doesn't turn on the lights and then puts her headphones on and goes to bed while her roommate is strangled by the killer. Since she's only after two people, she technically could have just offed her right there and instead chose to play mind games. In her in the movie's defense, Lionheart did the same thing. Like, he could have killed Devlin right there when he was doing the Romeo and Juliet thing and he oh, says yeah. specifically, I'm not going to kill you now because I want you to suffer. Other deaths, yes, I can see being not tied yeah. to her because like who cares like the guy who died from the pop rocks i don't see how that has any connection to her really at all but the right. death of her roommate is in her room so that would freak me the fuck out too if so i was just like oh yeah i didn't turn on my lights because i thought my roommate was having sex turns out she was being murdered and i could have stopped her that is actually a good one okay so i know that you have uh, some research on music that i, I really want to hear because i really like to hear how the music and these two movies uh, compares and contrasts. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to talk about really quick is um, the genre of both of these movies, because they're both sort of slashers, and they're both responses to genre trends. Urban Legend is a response to Scream. Scream came out in 1995, I believe, and Urban Legend was one of the first ones to sort of capitalize on the market at the time with that. Slashers had kind of gone out of style for a while. Every now and then one would come out, but nothing had really been done with those. And then Scream came out, and it was very meta. It had a mystery element to it that a lot of slashers didn't, because a lot of slashers, it was just like there is a killer maybe they have a theme mm -hmm. maybe not so this was a very like intelligent slick movie that took a lot of thought it not only was a satire of the horror of the slasher genre but it also specifically had a lot of interesting things built into it to make it good the beginning was an homage to psycho by casting a big name actress and then killing her off there was a mystery element to keep people interested Urban Legend tried to do that somewhat. It, it tried to copy some of that pattern. And there were several other movies that came out around the same time that did that, that like tried to ape that. There was a spike in slashers. I know what you did last summer. Both that and Urban Legend had sequels along with Screaming having sequels. Valentine's Day. There's a movie that came out in 2000 called Cherry Falls. And then there were more as well. Um, there was actually a movie that was written in the 90s that as a response to that, but it weirdly never got made until 2016. And it feels like it when you're watching it. And that's a movie that's on Netflix now <laughs> called Most Likely to Die. 
Turns out it was written in the 90s as a response to Scream, one of those that was supposed to capitalize on that movement, but just never got made. And it just kind of kept kicking around until it finally got made in 2016, and it's nuts to watch because it feels like a movie from the 90s. Theater of Blood is also a response. Vincent Price was in two movies the previous year. He was in The Abominable Dr. Fibes, which was a 1971 British horror comedy directed by Robert Fuest. Fuest? Fust? I don't know. And it was about Anton Fibes, who blamed the medical team that attended to his wife for her death four years prior, and so he set out to exact vengeance on each one of them with the Ten Plagues of Egypt from the Old Testament. And then he starred in the sequel that came out the very next year, Dr. Fives Rises Again. So when he starred in 1973 in Theater of Blood, and it's being almost the exact same setup, but with a weaker motivation, it's believed that this movie was a parody of those two. Uh, this was sort of like a spoof on those previous two movies, both of which also starred Vincent Price. Also, though, a lot of the deaths that are in the movie, specifically the death of Meridu and his two dogs, that's a reference to Titus Andronicus. This film can fit into a genre of horror called Grand Guinal. Grand Guinal got its name because originally there was a Parisian theater that opened in 1897 that specialized in naturalistic horror shows. It was known for extremely violent, bloody, realistic performances and special effects. Uh, rarely supernatural stories. These were basically the torture porn of the 1800s and 1900s. They like not not even <laughs> kidding. Uh, here are some examples. Um, one is called The Hallucination Laboratory by Andre Delord, and it's when a doctor finds his wife's lover in his operating room, he performs a graphic brain surgery, rendering the adulterer a hallucinating semi-zombie. Now insane, the lover-slash-patient hammers a chisel into the doctor's brain. Uh, there's another one called <laughs> The Kiss in the Night by Maurice Level. A young woman visits the man whose face she horribly disfigured with acid, where he obtains revenge. He basically locks her in a room and, like, rapes her and murders her. These were so graphic at the time that people would, like, pass out and vomit from how graphic this stuff was on stage. So they would frequently stagger the schedule, a horror play, and then a comedy play to keep the environment sort of light. And this thing was popular for years. They closed during World War II because the reality of stuff was so much worse than the stuff they were putting on in the plays that people stopped going because they were just like, I mean, I can see that in the newsreels. Which is interesting, since in the 2000s, we had a torture porn spike that seems to have been in response to the Iraq War, and all the horrors that we were dealing with then. But the reason I bring that up is because Titus Andronicus was used and in the genre of Grand Guinal because of its graphic, horrific deaths. It's, um, originally it was meant to be naturalistic, but its performances were very heightened and melodramatic uh, compared to the way things are acted today. And so, Vincent Price plays it really, like, theatrical and melodramatic and lots of scenery chewing, which ties into urban legend because even though it's not as graphic as that, Rebecca Gayhart's performance feels right. exactly like that. It feels like this big yes. portrayal where she gets to just go nuts and do whatever she wants to sell her crazy. I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about music. Yes. So that was a very unexpected but gratifying connection between these two films. They rely extremely heavily on what the music conveys to kind of like back up the actions of the movie. So to start with, the score for Theater of Blood was written by Michael J. Lewis. He's very famous. He didn't really do a lot of horror. Um, he was kind of hesitant to do the score for Theater of Blood at first until they re-pitched it to him because initially when they first pitched it, they said uh, it was going to be a horror movie and he was thinking of those like Hammer movies with Christopher Lee and so he was like, no, I don't want to do that. 
Then they repitched it and said, well, you know, we've got Vincent Price and it's going to be more like a black comedy uh, with some Shakespearean elements. And then he was on board. And also the relationship between the director and the composer, like the director basically just said, you know, go nuts, write what you want. And as long as we've got music to put to the film, we love it. And the end result is just an absolutely fantastic score. It's one of the best film scores there is, and it's easily can stand alone without any kind of movie context, but also adds relevant commentary to the images in the film. Urban Legends score was written by Christopher Young. He not only did the score for Urban Legend, but he's also done the score for Hellraiser and Tales from the Hood and Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and Drag Me to Hell. And he also did the score for Spider-Man 3, which I think we can all agree is the scariest of those films that I just listed. He, he has this fantastic horror movie scoring background, and you can tell in listening to the Urban Legend soundtrack, and you can tell how much, just how much he enjoys it because... I think when the original soundtrack was released, they had some of the music that was used in the movie, but also the score, and they only included 45 minutes of the score, which is what most movies have like 45 minutes worth of music. But Christopher Young actually wrote nearly 72 minutes of score cues for Urban Legend, and the movie is only like 93 minutes long, so it's almost entirely scored. Um, whether they used all of that in the movie, I can't entirely be sure. Uh, I know they didn't release it on the soundtrack, but he did write an enormous body of work for this, and put a lot of effort into it. The other thing that relates them is the passion. Both of these film scores rely heavily on passion. Um, the film score for Theater of Blood, really this is almost written in the view of Lionheart because it showcases his passion for Shakespeare during some of these great monologues and it showcases his playfulness during the sequence where they're removing that critic's head and he's like carefully draining the blood and making sure they're knocked out and carefully sawing off the head and the music that accompanies that scene is very lighthearted, but there's also like a sprinkling of sentimentality in there, which on the one hand makes the scene hilarious. It turns a potentially grotesque scene absolutely hilarious, but also adds a twinge of sentimentality to the point where you realize that in a very sadistic way, he's taking great care in, you know, and great pride in what he's currently doing, you know, just to fuck with these people. So that in that aspect, it's fascinating. And the, the, Edwina's theme is absolutely gorgeous and it really showcases Lionheart's if you're viewing this in the view of, of Lionheart then it really showcases his passion for his daughter and his love for his daughter because that is absolutely beautiful also, the score that accompanies the Ides of March scene at the very beginning is almost exclusively improvised. Um, and I can't tell, I can't find like excerpts of the score where it's printed. So I can't tell if it was written that way or if it was like written to a certain extent and then, you know, notes made of like you need to improv stuff. But it really showcases the manicness of the scene and like the frenzy of the situation and it builds the tension. And the last one that I think is noteworthy is the chase scene or the dueling scene between Lionheart and Devlin. So in that particular scene, the composer showcases a fugue, which perfectly fits what's going on on screen. What's a what's a fugue? So uh, so a fugue is a musical technique where basically a melody is repeated at varying points on top of itself to where not only does the chord structure match up, but the melody and counter melodies also match up. 
It's very difficult to do well, uh, at least in my opinion anyway. And when you listen to a fugue, it gives the effect that a melody starts running and then another melody starts chasing after it, even though it's technically the same melody. So when you listen to a fugue, there is the subject, which is the main melody, and then there's the answer, which is basically just a repeat of the main melody when the main melody diverts into a counter melody. So once the main melody diverts into a counter melody, then the answer is basically the first melody again. And when you listen to it, long story short, when you listen to it, it makes it sound like two melodies are chasing each other. And that is exactly what's happening in that scene. You've got one person that initiates a duel, and then they're essentially chasing each other around this thing and bouncing off of each other, which is exactly what a fugue does. And the fact that it's incorporated into the score and accompanies that scene is genius, and I love it. Urban Legend also is very passionate, um, but it's more of the passion of the situation. So it's building intensely on whatever the emotions of that scene are, which Christopher Young is very good at. And if you listen to clips from the Urban Legend score, I think they could also stand alone as like some kind of symphonic suite. Um, it would be a very intense and crazy symphonic suite, but there have been more, you know, I mean, crazier, more intense symphonic suites that were not accompanied, uh, you know, by movies. So anyway, um, what's interesting is all of the commentary on what's going on on the screen in Theater of Blood is built into the score. The commentary of what's going on on the screen in Urban Legend is not built into the score, but rather built into the diegetic music that characters are listening to. For example, in the very opening scene, the girl who's, you know, fixing to get killed by the killer in the back seat turns off the radio and then puts in a tape, which is Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart. But its focus is the section where she says, turn around. In the next one that I made a note of was the frat guy. I can't remember his name, but he's like blonde and he has the poorly grown beard, but he's like a frat guy anyway. He's trying to start his car before he goes off, you know, to the woods to try and, like, seduce this girl. And one of the big uh, explosive clips that comes out of his radio is um, I Don't Want to Wait by Paula Cole, which perfectly underscores that scene because he really doesn't want to wait. He really wants to, like, get in her pants. I also want to point out that it's also the theme song to Dawson's Creek, where oh. the actor was a character in. <laughs> That's funny. And then there is, um, they do other things with songs, obviously. There's one um, when the goth girl is communicating with who she thinks is a potential hookup. I don't know the song. I've tried to find the song. I, I actually wrote down all of the songs that they used in the movie, and I still haven't been able to find it. So I don't know if it's uncredited or if I'm not just, if I just need to listen to all of them. But the song specifically talks about, I've got a niche, and it's kind of like looking for love. It's a song that is talking about looking for love, basically, while she is actively looking for a hookup on this chat room.
And uh, then there's another one. They play the song Zoot Zoot Riot at the party. And that's really interesting because the party is paying homage to this massacre that happened. And the song Zoot Suit Riot is in reference to the actual Zoot Suit Riots of 1943, where a lot of minorities that were wearing Zoot Suits, which were considered unpatriotic because there was fabric rationing and Zoot Suits required a lot of fabric to make, and they were more popular among minorities. So they were perceived as unpatriotic. And so uh, U.S. soldiers and police officers they basically had like free reign to beat these people up and it was a big series of assaults that took place over 1943 and that song in a way is kind of paying homage to the zoot suit riots because it talks about partying but also you know they're gonna like come and get you and beat you up so might as well party so it's interesting how those two work on that level the last one that i could think of that was really interesting is technically not a song, but it is listed at the very end of the movie as a song selection. And it's listed in the credits as the end of Sugar Man from Coffee. And when I saw that, I was like, what the fuck is that? So if you've watched the movie, then you know that the character Reese, um, who's played by Loretta Devine, is basically the only campus security guard. And she really loves black exploitation films yeah, because they <laughs> dedicate this whole section to her love of black exploitation films and what is so fascinating is the particular clip that they show is from a movie called coffee and coffee came out i think in like 73 or 74 and is about a nurse named coffee who is avenging her sister's drug-related death due to these like pimps and gang members and drug dealers so it's another level oh, of a revenge great. tale within a revenge tale that we're comparing revenge tale is the care that was taken to not only score the movie but also having the diegetic music uh, directly reflect what's going on with the characters and with the action and then things like that where you know she loves black exploitation films and it's a black exploitation film about revenge and also towards the end she gets kind of her little you know moment where she kind of gets to live her black exploitation film dream where she like knocks in and shoots the girl in the elbow and is you know that particular scene i love and she's really awesome and then she does not get her due justice because that's another plot hole that i couldn't think of earlier they leave her there and they specifically say in the car she'll be okay the paramedics are on the way and when they said that i was like fucking white people like she literally came in saved your ass and then they were like well well the paramedics are on their way and we gotta go so bye oh so the care that was taken in not only planning the score accompaniment but like the sound bites and the music. I guess that's the music planning or music editing or something like that in both films is absolutely incredible. The level of detail that they put into doing that is incredible. And I think it's worth noting. And it was a pleasant surprise in discovering when watching the two films. Okay. I think that just about does it. Thank you very much for being here today. Yep. Thank you. You can follow us on Twitter at eerie underscore earfuls, email us at eerie.earfuls at gmail.com, visit us on the web at eerieearfuls, all one word, dot wordpress.com. We're also available on iTunes. Um, if you find us out there, you know, uh, leave us a review and tell us what you think. We're always looking for feedback. Our theme song is Baba Yaga by Kevin McLeod. Our synopsis music is Anxiety and Night of Chaos, also by Kevin McLeod. Find more music at incompetech.com. Thank you for listening, and stay scared, everyone.
As soon as they revealed uh, Loretta Devine was playing the security guard, and then Jared Leto steps in and he was like, well, you can't keep me from publishing stuff. He should have said, stay out of this, Laurel. It's between the Dean and me. Because Loretta Devine was the OG Laurel in the Broadway production of Dreamgirls. And that is what Effie says to her. Stay out of this, Laurel. It's between Dina and me. You're welcome. Dreamgirls reference in a horror podcast.